the response I got from that one is where I really got concerned. And that was, I know one of the men involved. There's no way that guy did that, knowing him, his family, and otherwise. I can't help you. Please keep going. There's a story here. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, today we're going to talk about journalism. What is journalism? Uh, What is it becoming? You know, as mass media abandons the principles of truth and objectivity and, and integrity that once gave it our trust as, as a public viewing audience, people are turning to alternative sources to get news and information. And this trend, combined with advances in media technology, uh, has given rise to a new breed of journalists, one that does not come from the stodgy, dusty halls of a university journalism program, but sometimes they come from uh, you know places like rural Alberta, uh, like our guest today, who ha- has uh, has become uh, a rising star in independent journalism. And his name is Jason Levine. Thanks for being with us today, Jason. Thank you, Leighton. I really appreciate that intro. And you're absolutely right about journalism. It's very different nowadays. So thank you for having me on to talk about what it looks yeah. like today. It's very different now. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about that and also some of the exciting stories that you have been covering and also some of the other things that you're involved with, like the National Citizens Inquiry that we talk about a lot on this show. But before we go there, before we introduce you uh, properly and sort of get into your origin story, as we always do, we're going to go to our framing aphorisms. You'll see these have been chosen in your honor along the theme of journalism. The first one is from Ray Bradbury, who's a very famous Mm. uh, science fiction author, uh, wrote uh, one of my favorite books, uh, Fahrenheit 451, which if you read that book, it'll explain a lot about what's going on in our world today. Uh, He wrote that journalism keeps you planted in the earth. Uh, Secondly, from uh, an author that we quote a lot on this show, C.S. Lewis, he says, isn't it funny how day by day nothing changes, but when you look back, everything is different. Next, from uh, maybe one of the most quoted people uh, anywhere right now, uh, the late, great George Orwell, who wrote, journalism is printing what someone else does not want printed. Everything else is public relations. And uh, of course, he's referring to his experience of journalism, which in his time was the printed word. But I would Mm -hmm. argue that today that has been surpassed by the platform that we're on right now. People now uh, are are consuming video and audio much more than the printed word. And finally, from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote, let the lie come into the world, let it even triumph, but not through me. The simple step of a courageous individual is not to take part in the lie. And uh, mm-hmm. if only uh, our, our mass media would, would listen to such advice. So, um, Jason, uh, I'm, I wanted to talk about you a little bit and kind of get introduce people. And a lot of people on our program know who you are. They've been following your show. But uh, when I researched you and your biography, some very interesting things came forward. I've, I learned that you were born in uh, northern Manitoba, uh, yes. which really struck me because my late father is from St. Boniface. Uh, you were raised on the prairies around Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I was born in Regina. And that you later attended uh, Fort Richmond uh, Collegiate in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Yes. But that uh, prior to returning to the prairies in 2022, uh, you started building a family homestead near Breton, Alberta. And uh, that led you on a very interesting uh, journey. And ultimately, uh, you ran as a candidate uh, for in a, in a in in the federal election. Is that correct? I'm running in the next federal election, so I was not part of the last one, but I'm running in the next one, which is hopefully right, 2025 an, or sooner. Right, as an independent. Um, independent and so yes. right, so so uh, I, I'd be interested to know a little bit about uh, your background. I know that uh, you worked or you trained as a uh, as a paralegal. Uh, and so you have a lot of uh, uh, legal background, but what was it that attracted you to journalism? 
excellent questions. And yeah, you do have my general starting story correct. Born in northern Manitoba, early years in Saskatoon, middle years, high school years in Winnipeg. So near St. Boniface, I know that area well. I was in Fort Richmond for most of that time. And then I went out east to go ahead and pursue a career in technology. It wasn't law to begin with. Became an entrepreneur, did participate in some startups, successful and not successful. Had a lot of, uh, you know, learning the hard way, you know, lots of errors. But as an entrepreneur, that's a great way to learn. Uh, ended up looking into law more as a, a necessary tool as an individual who's going to have a successful career, including in entrepreneurship. Uh, I did find that I was uh, involved in litigation or civil litigation as plaintiff or defendant for various matters, uh, whether good or bad. Uh, I did understand early that I would have to learn how to handle and be a recipient of litigation. As the more you grow, <laughs> you will learn. Uh, and as the more you have, you will learn uh, that there are going to be reasons to have uh, a comfortable understanding of the law. So that's my purpose for becoming a uh, licensed paralegal in Ontario at the age of 40 is when I wrote the exam. So I started at the age of 38, taking the courses and finishing all that up. And on my 40th birthday, February 14th, 2017, I did write the exam and pass as a paralegal. So this was later in my career. And then I used that experience to understand the law. I did practice for a bit, small claims court, traffic court, those kind of items, which is available to a paralegal in Ontario. And that was just to learn the system and understand law so I wasn't intimidated going forward. And that mm -hmm. was my real purpose. Um, and then, then I decided when COVID hit, there were some other situations that I wasn't comfortable with uh, for Ontario. We had a small homestead there one acre we maxed it out we didn't have any more room for garden or anything else that was one of the motivations to head out west to alberta to find some more land and to build our homestead and raise our children so that's really the the genesis but before i came to alberta in 2020 um yeah it was 2020 they came to alberta 2021 apologies yeah. may of 2021 well, uh, we're so glad we're so glad that you did. I want you glossed over a couple of things though that are really fascinating. You said your birthday is February fourteenth, which is obviously right. St. Valentine's Day. However, it's also the anniversary of the declaring of the Emergencies Act, and it just That's so happens true. that uh, we have something else in common, uh, Jason. Is I also have a February birthday. Mine is on mine is on the twentieth. But how extraordinary is it that your birthday, given the types of stories that you've come to cover, that your birthday is on? Was on the, that wasn't a very nice gift from Justin Trudeau in 2022 to Jason Levine, or was it? Uh, because it set you on this path where you um, you have really organized your journalism and focused your journalism on some of these huge stories that are impacting Canada. And coming back to our to my introduction, you're focused on stories that the mass media has largely ignored and arguably. Two of the biggest stories of the 20th century, or the uh, 21st century, I should say, connected the Freedom Convoy and the Coots Four. So let's start. Maybe we could jump to the kind of the origins of your podcast and mm. tell us how that's connected to not only your birthday, but the, what happened in, uh, in Ottawa a couple of years ago. Uh, February 22nd, 2022, when Trudeau went on the media and explained to us that they were going to revoke the emergency act, the use of yeah. the emergency act. And he explained to us how it was necessary. And then on Francais, so in French, he did say, if you don't agree with what I did here, the proper way to deal with this is to become a candidate, run against me and go ahead and bring forward your supporters and change law. Right. I agreed. I agree. So February 22nd was the day I decided I'm going to become a candidate, run as Voila. an MP, and go ahead and get into that office. I was very determined at that point because of the you know, injustice I did see immediately from my birthday mm -hmm. and on, and even prior to that, when Trudeau was calling these this group of people the various names and uh, you know, framing a, a narrative that was so obviously not true. Uh, I had mm -hmm. the journalism bite at that point because I was watching live streams from people walking around instead of the mainstream. I was walking, watching the news stream, I guess we can call it, uh, the Viva Fries and the Zots and the other people walking around showing us what's going on. Uh, 
that's what helped me understand what was going on for real. And this was with, without any Coots connection because early in February 2022, we didn't really know about the Coots connection until, you know, those firearms were found and it kind of snowballed from there, but not in my mind. I, in my mind, it was Ottawa. I was focused on Ottawa and seeing the pictures from there. We weren't seeing pictures from Coots. Um, so my initial passion to start the podcast was my desire to become a successful MP and my recognition that being an independent MP in a riding like Yellowhead, which is five hours tip to tip, so it's very rural, yes. would require a lot of public persona and a public uh, platform so that people can get to know me, understand who I am and see what it is I can do. And mm -hmm. I believe that a podcast in a way of helping people was a good way to demonstrate those skills to my neighbors. Mm -hmm. So that's what led to my coverage of the Public Order Emergency Commission in October of 2022. And that's when I started my podcast. It was to cover the Public Order Emergency Commission. So that's the genesis. Yeah, and it's grown just exponentially. Like you've had uh, some of the people you talk about, the Viva Fry, you've had them on your show, you've been on his show. Uh, oh, yeah. And you have to be, Jason, one of the hardest working uh, uh, journalists in this space. I mean, you have a two hour, you, you, you broadcast twice each day, at least. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got a morning show from six to eight in the morning. You often have uh, your friend Donald Best on there. And then you have another show in the evening. And then you're often on panel discussions. Like, where do you find the time and the energy to do all of this broadcasting? And then on top of that, um, you're you're also uh, a very very aggressive um, investigator, so that you're not just going on your show, you know, you know, talking, uh, you, you know, uh, as a, as a host of of uh, some talk show. Uh, you're coming on here and you're breaking uh, stories. Where you find all the time, and the energy to do this? It really is quite remarkable. Well, I think the easiest way to explain this to most people is I don't see it as work. I see this as an education. I, I consider this the MP boot camp. So member of parliament boot camp. <laughs> yeah. This is how I see it. And this is why it doesn't seem to be like work to me. I get the privilege of meeting two, three, four different people every single day to interview them, understand where they're coming from, what are the issues that are important to them. I seek out topics and guests for specific purposes so I can learn that subject matter and actually have some of it in my understanding as I'm making my way through what's going on in this world. I right. also feel like I'm a bit of a bloodhound, that I'm following the scent and I'm less yeah. of a German shepherd, which is being told where to go, which would be the current Although media. occasionally you clamp onto somebody's ankle. <laughs> yeah, well, the bloodhound can call in its friends, right? So yeah. I'm more of the sniffer and then someone like a Donald Best would be more of the right. investigator. Right. Um, this is why Donald Best and I work well together is I, right. will, I will be able to get the story and, and get people it's the best way to put it is people like to talk to me. They find mm -hmm. me to be friendly and they open up with me. And then yeah. Donald Best would be more of the, ah, I see something here or there's a flag here or a badge of fraud or something here that I don't even see. Mm -hmm. um, and I do have a bit of naivety in me where even sometimes I don't see it. He does and I don't, which makes yeah. us a really good team. I, I'm able to get in there to meet the people, shake the hands, hear the stories. And as we're building that out and sharing that with everybody, he's also able to understand a different level from his experience. Uh, and sometimes we stumble upon issues that we weren't looking for it, but being the bloodhounds that we are, we follow the scent. Uh, and a couple of the stories have come out that way. It wasn't really proactive where we were searching for the story. The story found us, if that makes a little bit more sense. Right, right. And and that's how that's been happening, especially with the coot situation, because it gets so little coverage that it requires somebody to speak with the family and the friends and the men. Yeah, everybody yeah. else, would, nobody else is doing that for us to find things. For example, right. the injustice that we've been seeing with the coot situation, that happened by talking to everybody around the men or with the men, mm -hmm. and even people who are not associated to it, but understand things like the law and government. I've had you know people from lawyers to police officers, to ex-police officers, to government, ex-government on to talk about stuff like that. And that's how, in my mind, as my boot camp to be an MP, this is the, the skill set that you would like to see in an right. MP. So this right. is why it doesn't feel like yeah. a job to me. It feels like that's a, a training. Great, yeah, that's a great explanation. And I want to talk more about uh, the stories that you've been covering on your show. 
But before we go, I don't want to, I don't want to just, uh, uh, you know, dismiss this whole idea of you becoming a, an MP. First mm-hmm. of all, I, 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 sh- I sure wish that my MP worked as hard as you do. Uh, our prime minister certainly doesn't, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, this idea of you becoming a member of parliament um, is is an interesting situation. Now, you are not affiliated with any particular party, and that's by design, isn't it? You're 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 by choice and independent. You want to explain about that a little bit? Yeah, I would say the better way to explain it is I'm adjacent to the parties. So the PPC, nice pun, <laughs> nice pun. With, yeah, adjacent, adjacent um, Levine. There you go. Yeah. Um, so I am friendly with the PPC. I'm also friendly with the CPC and I'm also friendly with all my neighbors. So what that allows me to do is be a very good independent. I can speak to all of them and understand right. them all. Um, I have been offered the position by the PPC very early in my my decision Not to surprising. ride. Yeah. Yeah. So candidate in waiting. Um, I have, I'm also an active member of the CPC party. Oh, are you? Because one okay. of... Because one of, well, I am a conservative, so I would say I'm an independent conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be the better way to describe me. Uh, but I have uh, become a member with the intention of challenging the incumbent. Uh, and if I can be successful at uh, providing the support for my candidacy via the CPC party as an independent, which would be a new type of candidate, which I don't know if the party would accept. But if the party is in a position to go ahead and accept me as a candidate as an independent, I think that would actually help the CPC party in ways that they haven't considered before. By being adjacent to everybody and being able to talk to everybody would give me a new way of bringing forward everybody's voice inside even the CPC. Now, I do have no disillusion that that would be an incredibly difficult path forward. And I do still think that the best representation for my neighbors would be an independent candidate with no party affiliation. Mm -hmm. Uh, That would allow me to be as powerful as I can be as a representative and bring their voice directly to the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. So I I still believe that is the proper path and that would be the most fruitful, but it's also Mm -hmm. the most difficult one. And that doesn't stop me. I think I, I, I can go ahead and demonstrate to my neighbors that an independent candidate with this skill set to be able to fight for truth and stand up to it is exactly the type of person that we want to send well, to the House of Commons. You've certainly exemplified all of those qualities on your podcast. So let's imagine for a moment that uh, you were speaking directly to your constituents, the people who would vote for you. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you describe yourself as a candidate? Like, what do you stand for on economic and, and social and uh and and political policy what 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 things are most important to you what would people in your constituency be getting if they sent you to ottawa the first thing that i would like to teach and and explain to everybody is the power of being independent and self-sufficient i think what i can do is demonstrate that not just speak about it but demonstrate that being a self-sufficient person whether you're a homesteader or you just grow a garden or you take care of yourself in some way maybe it's yeah entrepreneur or you're seeking truth through alternate media whatever it is that you're doing that makes you more independent of the government and be able to be more self-sufficient would be what i'd love to demonstrate to my neighbors because i do believe that that is a sustainable way forward for everybody to have Mm -hmm. a very healthy independence of your government and a healthy relationship with your government so what i would like to demonstrate to them is what a good healthy relationship with an MP to its constitu- their constituents would be. And that would be somebody who's in front talking to you, hunting down various stories, looking into certain situations, talking to the right people, and even doing things like mediating issues that you come along the way and find. Or sometimes because of your work, and this has happened to me recently, I get pulled into issues to help mediate it and solve it. So I think what I will be able to do if I'm speaking directly to my constituents and say, what kind of person do you want? Do you want somebody who's going to go get into the trenches when needed, build the bridges when we're required, and advance your voice? Or a little bit more of the same that you had so far? Mm-hmm. Conservative, yes, but conservative? Uh, I would absolutely be able to demonstrate to my neighbors that I would stand up to globalism. I would stand up to the global agenda. I would stand up for the children. I would stand up for the parents. And I would stand up for the soon-to-be parents or maybe be parents. I'd stand up for my neighbors. And that's where I would put that focus is on 
teaching through example by leading that an independent, self-sufficient lifestyle is your most sustainable and generational way to move forward. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where I would focus on. Great. One of the people, one of the groups of people I know that uh, are very important to you and that you you speak on behalf of, uh, and this is probably because of your background, are farmers. Uh, I know that you had a, a Jason Levine chats. Uh, and, and of course, farmers are people who not only in Alberta and in Canada, but worldwide are very much under attack. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, would you want to talk about that a little bit about your your interest and your focus on on farmers and the farming community, which are obviously very, very vital people in our communities, because without them, we have nothing to eat. Yeah, absolutely. By keeping my boots on the ground, I'm definitely connected to the grassroots people, and that would include farmers. Mm -hmm. um, so I early, very early, that's my neighbors. My neighbors are farmers. I live in a very rural, remote area. I have cows in one area, horses in the other. So we do spend a lot of time understanding each other and the hard work that we do. Now, what I noticed was the CPC party, my candidate here, he was advancing liberal loans to the farmers and not standing up to the uh, really? global agenda when it came to bringing forward fertilizer requirements mm -hmm. of a 30% reduction. I spoke to my neighbors and they were very concerned about their yields being affected by this and that wasn't right. being covered yeah. with the current conversation. So I took it upon myself and this is right around the time where I, I decided I need to help fight for my neighbors took it upon myself to reach out to Agriculture Canada. I was speaking to one other scientist there. I have this as part of my Twitter profile where I was asking the questions about the 30% reduction requirement. That conversation led me to the realization that they didn't know. The, the answer in the end was you're too late with these questions. And if you want these answers, you need global sources. This is what was written to me. So that made me fully understand that even Agricultural Canada, which was based here in Alberta, had no mm -hmm. idea why it is that they're bringing forward this 30% reduction of fertilizer for nitrogen purposes. And they couldn't even articulate to a Canadian who asked them for the reasons for it. This opened up a real, real big concern for me when mm -hmm. my own constituent, my own MP wouldn't touch the subject. Now, I, I do have to give him a little bit of credit. When the uh, request for proposal period, request for comment period expired on this particular issue, uh, which I was pushing hard on prior to the expiry because I wanted it to be extended so we can go ahead and get the answers. The day after it closed is when you heard the CPC party uh, push back on this particular issue the day after the request for comment closed officially. So I found that to be something that I just couldn't align myself with. If farmers have questions and they should get the answers, the response from the government and the party that represents them shouldn't be too little too late. Um, one of the things that really struck me was I was the first to ask these questions when I would expect these questions to be asked a long time ago from right. several different MPs, including the MP that was a shadow MP for the uh, agricultural minister of agriculture. That is an Alberta MP here. He should have been asking the same questions a long time ago as a requirement for this request for comment. But my surprise was nobody did until I did. And the response was, you're too late to ask those questions. So we're going to move forward. Mm -hmm. uh, I have no power. I wrote a letter to the MPs. I wrote a letter to Agriculture Canada. I wrote a letter to everybody that should be responsible for extending the period time to allow farmers to learn the reasons for it and have their responses. But unfortunately, with no MP power and no ability to persuade at that level, unfortunately, the the request for comment closed, and they are now moving ahead with this requirement for a 30% reduction in nitrogen, which will impact the yield of my neighbors, and that will drive an economic driver down the wrong direction when it comes to whether or not they can maintain their farms going forward. So I have a big concern for my neighbors, and I do want to bring issues like that forward when nobody else does. Yeah, Jason, you raise, I'd like to just flesh this out a little bit. You raise a really important issue about our farmers. Of course, we see the situation over in Europe where in countries like Germany and the Netherlands, France and Belgium, the, the farmers are off, are getting on their tractors and they're protesting mm -hmm. this, this globalist drive to basically uh, annihilate food production. 
uh, through nitrogen control in, in the name of really it, it's Marxism being done in the name of, uh, of, of climate change or climate protection. Mm. Um, we haven't yet seen the same level of awareness as you were just talking about. Uh, and we haven't seen the same level of activism by farmers in, say, the United States and Canada. Do you have a, a, an idea about that? What's your take on that? Why aren't uh, farmers in, in places like Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, British Columbia, or in Ontario uh, more concerned about this the way their sort of comrades in arms are over in Europe? Well, that's an excellent segue to January 2022 when the farmers in Alberta did just that. So the Coots blockade was a farmer-led with trucker coalition, I guess you can say, because there was a large amount of farm equipment yeah, involved in so. that. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that is definitely where farmers started to poke their nose out when it came to advocacy and standing up. There's no mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. uh, I also understand that the farmers, for now, uh, understand the consequences to that. There were some consequences. Laws have changed and things have been gotten have gotten pretty serious for anybody that participated in that. I do believe that narrative is falling apart, as we're seeing here in Alberta when it comes to the Coots men. And I wouldn't take off the table in any way, shape or form the idea of the farmers standing up again soon. Um, I do think maybe what they're waiting for is a couple more things like the Mosley decision, which did make it clear that there is protesting rights in Canada, that we're allowed right. to do that. Right. I think another decision soon, maybe around the organizers, because the Coots organizers are about to hit trial. So yeah. if that ends up being withdrawn or stayed or something happens where that isn't a thing anymore, where organizing the protest is something that you have to worry about, then I absolutely think uh, farmers are, are going to stand up again if the government continues the current mandate of fertilizer, water, and funding. Uh, mm -hmm. So when it comes to the loans that the governments are providing, that's putting farmers into a situation where they're likely going to default. They're going after fertilizer, as we spoke about, and they're now going after the water supply uh, in order to control how much water is used by farmers. So I do think very soon, if needed, you may see a lar larger response here in Canada when it comes to farmers. I hope not. I hope ideally there's no need, but I do think if, if we're looking at this fairly, the farmers did stand up in January, February, 2022. They understood how far their government's willing to go and now we're at the stage of understanding if the government could do that again. And I think with the Mosley decision and some other things happening here in Alberta, I think the government is going to learn that we can protest and maybe they should pay more attention to us when we do protest. So maybe we don't have to protest. I think that that's the kind of stage we're at right now. Your, your podcast and your journalism has become... Uh, one of the one of the best known and most trustworthy sources of information about the Coots War. Uh, you've just uh, you've taken a deep dive into this case. What was it that that drew you to this, uh, and uh, and and why have you felt that it was so important to tell the story of what's of what happened there, of what's happening there? I should say. Sure. So when I when I brought my show back after the POEC closed and there was no longer a reason to stream the POEC, I had to reevaluate what kind of show did I want. And very quickly, it became obvious to me that I enjoyed talking to people. So I started by having Tom Marazzo on as a guest. One Monday morning, I asked him to come on. He said yes. And He's I enjoyed a great that. book, by the way, folks, if you haven't yeah. yet read it. Probably the best book yeah. on the Freedom Convoy so far. Sorry to interrupt you, Jason, but not a problem. Plug in there for our mutual friend. For sure. And it's the best book on the convoy because I haven't written one yet. Uh, <laughs> well, we, can look, but, we can look forward to that. But he was a fabulous guest where I was able to talk about the POEC, his appearance there and other topics, including his book. This was just before his book came out. And then I decided at that point, well, maybe I will try and get all 76 witnesses from the POEC. Public Order Emergency Commission. And the oh, 76 wow. witness there is Justin Trudeau. So it's a pretty ambitious <laughs> list of people to try and get. But that's the kind of person I am. I, I went and looked at that list and said, let's try and get them all on. Have you so invited the Prime Minister to be on your show? I have to ask that. Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> but I have invited um, Thomas, Thomas uh, Jody Thompson. Thomas. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Yeah, no luck yet, but I have, she's on the list and I did invite her after her appearance recently on the news where she's still propagating the narrative, which has been disproven by now, but I did invite her on. But back to my little story. So Tom Morazzo was off and then another guest, I ended up getting Pat King, uh, Chris Barber, making my way through the list. So that mm-hmm. was the initial motivation to reach out to Twitter and say, hey, can you guys connect me to these people? Anybody on the POEC? One of the gentlemen, actually two of the gentlemen on the POEC that I tried to reach out to was the mayor of Coots mm-hmm. and Marco Van Husenbos, who was a, a witness from Coots. There yes. was also Alberta, the government of Alberta and other people. But when it came to the Coots people, these were two people I thought that I had an ability to reach out to. So at that point, I realized, wait a minute, I need to contact not just people on the POEC list, but also this Coots situation. That's when I put out a tweet and I said, hey, I'm looking into POEC and Coots witnesses. Anybody that was a witness to those two events, I'm interested in speaking to. That's when I got put into contact with uh, Margaret uh, McKay, or McKay um, who is known as Granny around Alberta, who's been supporting the men and bringing advocacy and awareness to them. And very quickly, I learned their story, uh, got connected to some of the family members. And very quickly, I fell in love with all of the people involved and in the cause. When I realized very quickly a couple things. One, these gentlemen are getting special treatment to stay in remand because they didn't have bail. And this was after a year or so of, year and a half almost, of when they were put in there. The, I, I got involved on day 495 of their incarceration. So just over a year of incarceration. And we're now at day 740 something. Uh, So I haven't been involved for that period of time. Yeah. So I actually, I fell in love with the story of what was going on because of my POEC coverage. I understood that the coot situation was one of the pieces of information that was done in camera. So we didn't get to see the information and know what happened, but we do know that the report concluded that it was all true. Everything that happened in Coots was true. In order to support the decision from Rouleau, Coots became a very, very important conversation. And then when I spent some time looking into it and seeing things like this picture was provided to the press within hours and the evidence wasn't handled in a way that can be be used as evidence in court, like it would be very difficult to fingerprint and DNA and do other things to this evidence. When I started realizing these things, we knew we had a problem. Um, And that's when I looked into the publication ban and the reason why none of the media is touching it. And then I realized, unfortunately, um, that's being misrepresented. There is no media ban. Uh, There's a publication ban on certain items. And you certainly can be press and and report on this stuff, but they weren't. Uh, So that's when I knew we had to spend more time on coots. It wasn't getting coverage at all. And that's really what drew me in for the last 300 and something days on it. Do you have an idea or a theory about why the mass media, the global news and the CBC and the CTVs of the world are basically ignoring what has to be one of the most important stories of our time in this country? And and even globally, uh, you have Tucker Carlson, the most watched media personality in the world right now, coming to Edmonton and Calgary and talking specifically about the Coots 4. He even had somebody on his show to talk about the Coots 4. And yet the Canadian... Uh, mass media, as I as I talked about, formerly our most trusted source of news and information, uh, is completely ignoring this story. Why do you think that's happening, Jason? Well, when I first started, I thought it was a simple excuse of the government doesn't want the state media to do it. So immediately I said, CBC, CTV, Global, the, the regular players, I guess they're under some sort of order not to. That was my really? presumption at that wow. stage. Sure. And that's a... That's, that's a, true. That's a, horrifying, isn't it? Sure. But where I actually got concerned is when I reached out to alt media. So this would be the rebels, the Western Standard and the true north of our of our country. This would be considered the well-established alt media. I won't tell you who and I won't even gender the person. But one of my contacts at one of those organizations, I reached out to and said, hey, I'm looking into Coots. Uh, can you share any information with me? Can you tell me what you've done? Because this news organization did have some coverage early, but nothing more recent. Right. And uh, the response I got from that one is where I really got concerned. And that was, I know one of the men involved. I grew up with one of the men involved. 
there's no way that guy did that, knowing him, his family, and otherwise. I can't help you. Please keep going. There's a story here. So getting that message out of alt media uh, really made me go, huh, well, what in the world is he or she not sharing with me? Because they absolutely are too worried about even talking about their relationship with one of the people involved and their personal direct experience with that person. Mm -hmm. And they want to touch this subject. That really got the hair on the back of my neck up when alt media was staying away from him. The next one that really put a flag on me, and I think I'm going to be able to answer your question now with this one, is uh, Fox News down in the United States uh, having a conversation with them behind the scenes about whether or not they would cover the story. I won't say which host it was, but there was a conversation. And the conversation simply said, well, there's a media ban on this issue. Everybody knows we can't touch it. And my response to them was, no, there isn't. There's a publication ban on certain items, but you can talk about the rest of it. Their insistence that there is a media ban, which was the same language being used by alt media and mainstream media in Canada and other places in the world, made me realize that likely the Trusted News Initiative, which is out of the UK, provided that narrative in some way that mainstream and most uh, media that's associated with that got the memo that there's a publication or media ban on the coot situation stay away from it there would be litigation if you got involved in it and it's improper and it's not even accurate that particular narrative but when i saw alt media say i can't touch that likely for litigation reasons but they couldn't provide that to me and then even fox news saying that we're not touching that that's when i knew it was bigger than even just our media not touching it. There's likely a bigger narrative here on not telling the truth about these political prisoners in Canada. And I believe that that was to ensure that the narrative for the invocation of the EA, in general, countries coming down hard on their citizens in fear of their citizens and putting in place certain things so that their citizens don't take control or fight back. That was a global issue. And then in the Coots narrative being shut down was a global initiative. That's that's mm-hmm. what I believe at this stage. And that's why the Tuckers and the Elons and the others who are not part of that particular organization, Trusted News Initiative, do seem to be willing to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would include Newsweek and myself. Yeah, well, but you've not just been covering this as an as a news story. Uh, this is sort of an intellectual exercise. You a- have actually taken the time to get to know these men and to get to know their families. Um, why did you think it was important to do so? I didn't think, to be honest with you. I kind of just followed. And uh, I didn't realize I did that until one of the families sat me down and actually asked that question. I was basically interviewed by one of the family members because they don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing either. So they asked me, they said, why is it that you're spending your own money, your own time coming down to Lethbridge, going to the court, talking to everybody, doing a show about it? Why are you doing that? And I didn't really have a good answer because I actually really don't know why I'm doing that. Uh, Calling, a desire to get to the truth. I don't like the fact that uh, Canadians were attacked in Ottawa and in Coots. I don't like the fact that Canadians can be arrested and held without trial or bail. And then I started to get paranoid that if I am ever picked up by my government, am I going to have the same future? And Mm. if that's the case, I need to vitiate or get rid of that potential now because if they can pick up these gentlemen who, you know, at the time the evidence was showing, and now that two have been released, the evidence has been vindicated that it wasn't uh, what the media said it was. Well, then any one of us, including you, Leighton, could find ourselves in a predicament because our government doesn't like what we're saying. So I, I think my desire to keep exposing this and to make sure that we have platforms that expose this is in case one day I'm on the wrong end of my government. Mm -hmm. And I hope that other people like you and others who do platforms like this would be there for me too. Uh, Mm -hmm. So maybe that's, that's kind of my 
uh, indirect I can reason tell for you right now, hand, hand to heart, hand to heart, we'll be there for you if it happens. Oh, and I, and I, and I know, I know the, the reverse is, uh, is true, but you know what you just said, Jason, it really struck me because what I was saying off the top of the show about sort of the, let's say viewing journalism in its best light, right? Mm. Uh, the picture of, of a journalist as a truth seeker, as somebody who is interested in exposing injustice uh, and, and making other people aware of it so that it can be rooted out and, and fought and destroyed. Um, isn't it ironic that here you are, a serial entrepreneur, uh, you know, someone with, uh, you know, homesteading ba uh, background, um, you're not from, you know, Carleton University School of Journalism. Uh, you didn't come out of Harvard. So here, here all of the quote-unquote uh, classically trained journalists are, are turning their noses up or I guess putting their, burying their heads in the sand on this very important story. And yet here you are uh, living out really the best virtues, the, the, the best principles of journalism, uh, you know, by covering the story and, and without question putting yourself potentially at some degree of risk. Mm. Um, I find that that a little bit uh, a little bit ironic. Do, do you see my? Do you see what I'm saying? Or you have some thoughts on that? Absolutely, because um, I'm told all the time you need to be accredited. You have to do things a certain way. Nobody's going to trust you. Nobody's going to find you credible. Like these are all the hurdles that I have all the time, including reporting in Al uh, Alberta courts. I I can't yeah. sit in the section that says accredited with undertaking. I I've been denied on my application to do that, even though I got accreditation through the Independent Press Gallery of Canada. I'm still struggling with being able to be recognized as an independent journalist inside the courts here in Alberta. But the irony is, I am I would say I think the, the trouble for the establishment with me is I didn't get indoctrinated. I didn't get into a system that told me it has to be a certain way and you have to yeah. do it a certain way and you have to take it from your editor or you have to fall. Like I wasn't indoctrinated into that system. So I'm I think I'm more of a naive <laughs> and this is why I, I, I relate more to like a bloodhound who's just following the path wherever it goes versus a German shepherd who's been trained and will go on command to do whatever. Mm -hmm. um, even a drug sniffing dog, you know, under training, they, they're trained to do certain things. And that's why I see I'm like different. I, I'm quite literally, I came out of the bush as a tech guy with a little bit of law and my pilot's license and that's my training. And then I took my desire to follow the truth and it's going to get me in trouble because I'm going to establish relationships and maybe not the way I should. I might make mistakes in my reporting. I might use one source when I should have two. Like I'll make mistakes along the way and then learn from them. The CBC um, doesn't bother to have any source. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, but it also gave me this different way of looking at it, which is a naive way. But I yeah. see it in a certain light that I don't think I would have seen if I went as a profession or a desire to become which will happen right. if you go through journalism school. Right. So but, I, but there's I a sincerity to your reporting and an authenticity to it that those other people lack. You know, there's a great movie from the 1940s uh, that what you were just saying reminds me of. It's called Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It stars Jimmy mm -hmm. Stewart. And it's about this guy, I've sort of a naive kid from, uh, he's from some state like Kansas. And he goes to Washington. He doesn't know anything about all the backroom deals and the brokering and all of that. Uh, you know, pork belly politics in Washington. And uh, so it's a very fascinating story. We're just saying sort of remind me of that, about how somebody sort of enters into uh, a situation with some degree of naivete, but their, but their principles and their integrity sort of guide them through and in some ways actually uh, expose, uh, you know, sort of the, the lack of those principles and the people who are part of that system. And perhaps that's why you're getting some resistance from the journalism world is they're seeing that you're you're practicing a more, uh, let's say, authentic style of journalism, not a, a as much of a commercial one, uh, one that's let's say owned by the Liberal Party of Canada. Leaving that off to the side, let's talk about these men for a second because you've gotten to yeah. know all of them. Um, uh, James Sowry has mm -hmm. been sentenced, uh, and the other two have been sentenced. Can you can you talk about about those three men who have now been sentenced, and then we can we can maybe talk about the two who are still going to uh, 
are still in custody and facing trial. So tell us about James Sowery and the other two who have been sentenced for, for a little bit, because some people might not be aware of the story yet. Sure. So James Sowery was uh, convicted by jury uh, for the act of uh, dangerous driving and uh, assault with a weapon, the weapon being his truck and the dangerous driving would be uh, coming too close to a police officer checkpoint and not stopping. That's really the general uh, situation. He was leaving Coots on his way home on the 14th of February when he didn't stop. This is agreed upon facts where he didn't uh, stop at a checkpoint, was later pulled over, and then charged for putting the life of the officer at the checkpoint in danger. He was found guilty by jury and was sentenced to 10 months, and he just started that about a month ago. So he's got about nine more months to go. He does have an, an appeal written, but not filed, and he's working on fundraising to go ahead with that appeal. And that appeal is based off of Charter 8 violation, a couple of them, um, in competent representation and uh, possibly fresh evidence. So mm -hmm. there's a potential appeal there, uh, which he is hopeful that he will advance at some and point. Does he have a lawyer right now, Jason? He has a lawyer who did the okay. work, but he doesn't have the retainer to file and do okay. the work. So that's the stage he's at now. He has, has an appeal written that we believe would be successful if he has the ability to bring it forward. So that would be James Sowery. He is not known as one of the four Kootsmen who was in remand. So there was four gentlemen, which you see them beside behind me here. Uh, all four of those gentlemen were arrested on the 13th or 14th of February, 2022. And until recently, they were all held pre-trial, no bail. Um, the two that you're referring to that came out, uh, got sentenced and came out after a plea agreement is Chris Lysick and Jerry Morin. So Chris Lysick was one of the gentlemen who was facing uttering a threat, um, possession of a, a firearm for illegal purposes or dangerous purposes, uh, conspiracy to commit murder, mischief over 5,000. And I believe there was another one for uh, prop, improper handling or improper storage of a firearm. So he had five charges, and then Jeremy Morin had um, conspiracy to commit murder, mischief, and uh, possession of a weapon for dangerous purpose. So they had three charges that were the same, and then uh, Lysik had two additional charges that were separate from the rest. Uh, both of those gentlemen ended up pleading recently. Uh, Chris Lysik ended up pleading to possession of a, a registered and restricted firearm that was loaded and not where it should be. So a license violation, and he got sentenced to time serve and has been released. Jerry Morin has- Essentially like th about three years jail with time with credit for time served, right? So still a lengthy sentence, wasn't it? I don't know if, I think he had two and a half and I think the other, and Morin had the three and a half plus time served. Okay, plus okay. Time. Yeah, because uh, Morin, his charge that he pled to was a conspiracy to traffic weapons for the illegal purpose. Okay. Um, so that's a more serious charge than um, Lysik uh, mm -hmm. admitted to. Uh, and then, of course, Jerry has additional uh, information that he's providing to the Crown that the Crown will bring forward against the other two gentlemen. So Chris Carbert and Tony Olenek, who are still remanded uh, pre-trial, no bail. Mm -hmm. uh, but we will be going back to court February 20th, which will be next week. And we're, we're filming this or we're recording this on my birthday. So <laughs> the anniversary is my birthday as well, February 14th. But we'll go back on the 20th to find out um, if the next pretrial application will be successful, which is to uh, do a charter rate application for the ITO number one, it's been referred to as, mm -hmm. which is the ITO that was based on wiretaps. So there'll be a challenge on that. Uh, by Chris Carbert and his lawyer. And uh, that's what we'll go with that. We'll continue with the pretrial, and we're looking at trials starting late May throughout June 2024. And hopefully we'll get a decision before uh, we get near the Jordan decision date, which will be August to October, somewhere in there. Right. So um, those two men are still facing trial. Um, are they both represented by counsel right now? They are. Yeah, good, so good. at one point, Tony Olenek was not, but uh, when we went back on the 6th of February, uh, which was to continue the pretrial, we learned at that date that uh, he now has a new lawyer who's on record, and uh, we'll be going back on the 20th to give uh, his new lawyer time to go through disclosure and prepare 
for being present on the 20th. So that was why there's an adjournment. Is there a revised uh, application for bail coming or is that or or have they exhausted their 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 avenues uh, in terms of gaining judicial interim release? Well, on a legal level, they haven't exhausted all options for bail, but on a practical level, I believe they have. So right. Chris Lysak was the most recent one who did a bail application and it was denied recently. And it took close to six or seven months for that bail application process to make its way to a decision. It's wow. not as easy as just applying for bail. You have to find something that will require the court to reevaluate the decision. Right. Material and change the- in circumstances, right? Yeah. Correct. There's a whole hearing on whether or not the threshold to reopen the decision has yeah. been met. Now, in Chris Carbert's situation, he was successful at that stage of the bail uh, review because he was able to have another bail hearing. But unfortunately for him, at that point, the decision was meant to keep him in a little bit longer. Tony Olenek and the rest of the gentlemen at that stage didn't a bail application in because they were all waiting for the results of Chris Carbert's. This is a very expensive and lengthy process. So they were like waiting to see how that turned out for him. Now that he's been denied and the trial is going to be starting in May, I don't anticipate any more bail attempts unless something really material has changed. And I don't think the release of these two gentlemen would qualify for that. In fact, the Morin release does provide the Crown with another witness against these gentlemen. So I do think that even if another attempt was made at a bail hearing, the Crown's position might have strengthened. So I don't think practically there will be any uh, ability to actually change that decision. And I do believe that men understand that. Well, uh, one thing we know is that you'll continue to to cover that story and reveal the the truth about it to Canadians, uh, for which we're grateful. One of the one of the important things that's that's come out of this, um, and I would say that your reporting of this of the of the story has contributed to this is that we're now we are now actually seeing uh, some uh, mass media outlets begin to cover the story. There was a recent story, as you know. Um, that was uh, that was actually brought out in Newsweek, uh, yeah. one of the largest syndicated news services in the United States and indeed in the world. Uh, and the and the cover story was "Meet the Four Men Being Held as Political Prisoners in Canada." Wow, I mean that certainly would not that story would not have run even three months ago. Uh, but uh, I would say that your reporting, in combination with some of the other things we talked about, you know, Tucker Carlson and so on. Um, the word really is getting out about these men, isn't it? Yeah, and what I can actually speak to specifically about that one is that was authored by Gord McGill, and that is Gord McGill's third article as an opinion piece in Newsweek. His first article was after he sourced an interview with us, so me. He came on my show a couple of times, met with some of the family members, and was investigating the Coot situation for his uh, article in Newsweek, the original one, uh, back in 2023. And that really was the first time any mainstream media picked it up. Uh, from that point on, Gord continued to work with us, get more details. He created a second story. And Gord is the one who was on Tucker Carlson. So Gord McGill was able to speak to Tucker Carlson for about 30 minutes about the Coot situation. So I, I do agree with you that it was through the work of Donald and myself and others that brought forward the story, brought Gord to the table, introduced it to him, opened up Newsweek, and eventually found him on Tucker and then Tucker is speaking to Danielle Smith about it here in Alberta. I do believe that that was the result of a lot of effort from a lot of people uh, stemming from uh, the inclusion on this show. Mm-hmm. Well, well, of course, we talked a lot about the about the coot situation because you've covered it so extensively. But certainly, that's not all that you're doing. You've also spent a lot of time covering the National Citizens Inquiry, and in fact, recently, uh, you were appointed to to a very important uh, position. Uh, by the inquiry, and you're doing a lot of work with them right now. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing with the National Citizens Inquiry? Absolutely. So like most startups, when they start up, 
they have something in mind when they get going. And like most successful startups, at some point there's going to be pivots and changes in the future. So what ended up happening with the NCI is they started up and did their inquiry and then they got to the point where they needed to figure out what to do next. So there ended up being two different uh, ideas about how to move forward. One was to go ahead and close the inquiries, call it a day and bring it forward in a prosperity and in a um, promotion type of way to get people aware of the report, bring it to the government and, and try and really ad advance it and leverage it as a tool for change. And then there was another group of people who wanted to just keep doing inquiries and just keep doing this forever. Of course, both of those are wonderful, <laughs> wonderful missions, but it did lead to uh, a situation where it needed to be figured out how to move forward. Right. So as part of my uh, interviewing, I interviewed dozens of people from the NCI. I have done maybe 10 shows specifically on the NCI in different avenues. In fact, you were on one of them uh, yes. as we talked about the litigation value of the NCI with uh, Ken Drysdale, who was one of the commissioners. Mm -hmm. Because of my work on that, I got really familiar with and intimate with all the people involved and I had great relationships with it. So when it became known that there was going to be a question in the public to answer what the future of the NCI looks like, I was pulled in very early so that I understood that this question was coming. Now, how we deal with questions like this is always a challenge, whether we do it publicly, privately, a hybrid of both, but we needed to figure out, and I say we colloquially now because I was kind of brought in early, we needed to figure out how to advance this. So after interviewing all the parties that be, I got nominated at one stage to be an informal mediator. I'm using that word carefully Wonderful. because I'm not licensed as a mediator, but I can function as an informal mediator who's trying to advance uh, understandings between groups. Right. Through my, so I was nominated and then I was accepted by the other side and that's exactly what I did. I spent some time with uh, various members of the NCI and people that have a stake in the MCI, including witnesses who participated. And uh, through very little negotiation and conversation, I can report very quickly that it wasn't difficult to align everybody to some understandings that gave everybody the opportunity to advance their mission. And on February 14th, which is what we're at right now, I can report that I'm expecting a positive income outcome to be announced any moment now, that the NCI will continue forever to continue to hold our government accountable and look into issues that are important to Canadians and the NCI final report 2023, which addressed COVID and whether or not the COVID mandates and uh, approvals were valid is going to move forward. And we will see um, a lot more promotion and advancement of the prosperity of that particular report done by a group who's very passionate to get this done quickly. So I'm happy to report that we're gonna have a new NCI, which is gonna be called the National Citizens Inquiry and it's a nonprofit organization. It will continue with the name, the brand, and the social media, while this another, uh, other entity is gonna take a copy of the report and start to hold our government accountable by bringing it to the globe so we could all understand what it is the Canadian government did. Brilliant. So I was lucky enough to be part of that, yeah. and we can report, we're gonna have two organizations now who are fighting for Canadians, not just one. And we have a clearer path forward how the NCI will continue to provide inquiries, provide reports, and hold people accountable. So I'm very pleased oh, that the outcome was Yeah, was, was, yeah. Uh, and I'm achieved. so glad that you're that you're that you're doing that. They couldn't have chosen a better person for that job. I happen to think that the NCI is the most important public legal education endeavor of my lifetime. Uh, mm. And uh, you know, it's a shame that more people don't know about it and uh but the work that you and others are doing i know will will change that so um that's that's wonderful i wish you much continued success with that um jason we've come to the part of our show where we uh wrap up we've taken up uh some of your time we know how busy you are with all the shows and investigations that you're doing um this is the part of the program where we have something called the reading list 
And mm -hmm. um, so here uh, we give you the opportunity to point uh, some of our, our listeners and viewers to uh, sources of information, whether they're books or websites or, or whatever, that you think would be valuable to give them maybe greater insight, a deeper knowledge of some of the topics that we've been talking about, some of the things that you investigate uh, and report on as part of your work. Um, I'm going to start off and then I'm going to give you uh, the last word. Uh, so I have okay. a book uh, that I found that you've probably seen. It's called uh, Eyewitness to Deceit. Uh, and this is a book by uh, Danny Bulford, who I believe has been on your show, mm -hmm. um, yes. he, and, and Tom McGuigan. Uh, we, we, this is with uh, Tom McGuigan and Rick Gill. Um, there's a preface, I should say, by, by Corporal Danny Bulford. He writes the preface. But Tom McGuigan worked within Freedom Convoy in 2022 in intelligence capacity. His work was to prepare analytic reports to provide uh, protective intelligence for Freedom Convoy 22, first responders and general public in Ottawa. He has over 30 years of experience and deployed operational experience. He was able to witness the campaign of deceit run by the government of Canada against its own citizens. And uh, of course, uh, all of this now has been revealed in greater detail. But this book tells the story of how uh, the mainstream media played its compliant role. The CBC, for instance, twice created evidence-free stories about how the Russians and Putin were behind the convoy's organization, <laughs> uh, that it was American money and claims that terrorist money was involved. You know, so a lot of willful lies uh, about the convoy being perpetrated by their prime minister. So this book tells um, this whole story, you know, in great in great detail. Uh, and so it's it's a worthwhile book to just to look back on uh, what what happened, given that we're at the two year anniversary right now and everybody's talking about it. I happen to think it would be worthwhile to have a, a national date of remembrance for the Freedom Convoy. And I think I would fully support the commissioning of a statue uh, that would be that would be erected there um, on the grounds where the Freedom Convoy occurred. And so if anybody's out there and wants to raise some money and take up that torch, I'd be happy to, to get behind you and march in your parade. The other book is um, is uh, tells a story about uh, sort of a collateral uh, American situation. This is January 6th. And Jason, you might agree there are some interesting parallels between mm -hmm. four and January 6th prisoners. We actually had a guest on our show um, from the United States who's doing a lot of the same work that you are, um, uh, but on behalf of the January 6th prisoners. This book is called January 6th, How the Democrats Used the Capitol Protest to Launch a War on Terror Against the Political Right. And uh, this book um, uh, is, is analogous because a lot of the same type of political interests, a lot of the same chicanery, a lot of the same, frankly, evil uh, is, was, is being applied um, in the January 6th situation as is being done in, in the situation with the Coots prisoners. And mm -hmm. so I think it's it's useful for people to see that and see some of the parallels, because just as we talked about how the farmers are being beset upon throughout the world, and we see it seems as though all of these horrible ideas are coming from the same source. Uh, it's interesting to see some of the parallels with the January 6th situation versus what's happening in Coots. So anyway, those are my two selections. And with that, I'll turn it over to Jason and give you the last word. Well, I think those are some excellent options and, and books to read there, especially the one about Jan 6, because if you can understand that there's a parallel between what happened in Coots and Jan 6, you might be able to zoom out a little bit further to see that happened in Venezuela, happened in Germany, it's happened in France, it's happened in the Netherlands. Then you'll start to understand that maybe these are not local isolated issues, that maybe there's a thread all the way through that's a common thread. So that's why I will recommend two books. Uh, the first one is going to be The Great Reset by Klaus Schwab. Right. I think everybody should read that one. <laughs> Not <laughs> as an instruction manual on what you think should happen, and you certainly don't have to read it in from the perspective of agreeing with him, but I think you should take a closer look at what it is that he's openly suggesting that should happen on a global stage. Right. If you do read this book, then you may be able to take it a step further than the Jan 6 book to understand that this is by design and it is exactly going the way that they're expecting it to, except for Canada resisted far more than they thought it would. So that's a good note to leave Canadians on. The second book I'm going to put out there 
I'm going to have to plug myself because there's a really good reason why I wrote Bearing Witness. Um, so this is a book I have available. And you can go onto my website, thelevinshow.com, and get a free copy, a digital copy, because I think the information is far more important than the merchandisability of it. So it's called Bearing Witness, The Ethical, Legal, and Practical Guide to Recording and Sharing History. So what I'm doing with my show is I'm basically doing what I teach in my book, which is to get out there, search for the truth, record the truth, share the truth, and make it valuable so it can be used in ways like media, education, or even litigation. I have chapters in this book that understand that there's going to be mental impact. You're going to actually have some sort of mental trauma as you're doing this type of work. You're going to be attacked for the work that you're doing. You're going to see things that are going to be traumatic sometimes. So this book takes you through how to mentally prepare yourself and make sure that you are somebody that can bear witness and then help bring value from that. So I do believe that my work and other work uh, from people similar to this is how we get out of this darkness of falsehood and narratives. It need We need thousands of people and thousands of shows to be exposing this. So mm-hmm. that book, I give it away for free for the purpose of helping people understand the value of a good witness in society and how to become one. So those will be the two books, oh. The Great Reset and Bearing Witness. Thank you for those selections, Jason, especially for mentioning your own book, um, I'd be interesting. I'd be interested to read that myself. And I'm going to ask you right now, if you wouldn't mind, if you would, would dedicate uh, a copy to, to me and, and, uh, and provide that to me, I'd be most grateful. Um, and, and also I want to urge you, uh, to consider, and you probably have considered, uh, writing a book about your experiences with the Coots for, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. there've been several, um, books about the freedom convoy, but unless I'm mistaken, nobody's written a book yet about that story. And it seems to me you would be one of the best people to do that. So, uh, I'd be, I'm very, very, I'd be one of the first ones lining up to read your book about the Coots Four. in any case, uh, I want to thank you so much for being our special guest here today and to sharing and for sharing with, uh, our viewers and listeners, your experiences and getting to know you a little bit better. Um, I'm very grateful to you for the work that you do uh, as an investigator, as as a podcaster. I'm especially indebted to you for sort of drawing me into the vortex of the Coots 4 story because I have to be honest, uh, I'm one of the people who wasn't paying close enough attention to it. And Mm. it was because of people like you, especially you, uh, that I began to to pay more attention to and, and to see uh, the injustice that was being done there. And uh, so I, I'm indebted to you for doing that. Uh, and we wish you, we wish you, of course, much continued success with your, with your podcast and all of the incredible investigative journalism that you are, are doing. And uh, I hope that at some point I'm going to be able to refer to you as the honorable Jason Levine uh, that after the, after the next federal election. But in any case, uh, God bless you. And thank you so much for being our special guest here today on Grey Matter. Thank you very much, Leighton, for having me. It's been a pleasure to become close to you and maybe even become a friend to you. I do appreciate the fact that you see this journalism for what it is, and that is an honest effort to help Canada. So thank you for having me on, and God bless you as well. Thank you, Jason. 